This is Dialogue on Teaching. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. I am, of course, here with my sound engineer, Dr. Paul Myrie. We are doing the second um, episode, trying to assist people in this time of the pandemic, switch from their formatted, uh, already syllabused um, classes that they're teaching face-to-face to classes that are now being required to be online because of the social distancing that's needed during this time of pandemic. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Askoff. He is from Queen's University in Toronto, Canada, um, and he teaches as professor in the School of Religion. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Nancy and Paul. Thanks for having me here. You're, we're glad you're here. We need your assistance. Um, so uh, Paul and I have been joking that people know that I am uh, in the classroom and beyond the classroom, one of the most low tech people who uh, has the privilege of teaching in higher education. So I, I was saying that if I were asked to, on a moment's notice, go online or to switch to an online format, my version of online would be to do freeconferencecall.com, or free conference calls with my <laughs> students, not even .com, just free conference call. So people are being right. asked to do something a little more sophisticated than that and, and more immediately than that. So Richard, just, just, just start. We know you're, we, we appreciate your expertise. We appreciate this conversation at this time. So help us. Well, yeah, I mean, it's unprecedented. Um, there's been the move, of course, to online teaching um, recently, more so than, say, 20 years ago when, when Paul and I started talking about these things. But always moving from a syllabus to an online, a face-to-face class to an online course, you have a lot of lead time. And being asked to do it in the middle of a semester is uh, unprecedented and, and it just, it, it's wild. And, and a lot of people are um, understandably very stressed by this. Uh, and so I, I think my first piece of advice would be to think about the course you're teaching now. What are your learning outcomes? And I, I know there's a lot of controversy around those, but at this stage, what do you want your students to learn? And how are you going to be able to do that online? We can talk a lot about you know, great principles for online design, but right now I think we need to boil it down to you know, students first, what do they need to learn from this course, and how am I going to do that uh, by moving online? And there's many different answers to that depending on uh, what the course looks like. Um, I can give you, my university has not announced it yet, but I'm expecting to hear very soon that we're moving our course online for the last few weeks of the class or of the semester. And my course is highly interactive. I'm in 85 students in an interactive classroom. They're all seated at tables. Uh, and they work a lot in group work. And normally online, I would say group work is great, but I don't know that I can design that between now and Wednesday mm-hmm. when, when I think we'll be going online. So um, I may have to ironically go to posting readings of having them respond to those. Um, but if that's the way I can get them to meet their learning outcomes, I think that that's where you might be core. So, so I hear you saying being open to radical changes in your learning activities and your teaching strategies, but hold on to your learning outcomes. Right. So the learning outcomes would be your buoy. Your learning outcomes would be what you're teaching toward, even as you make these changes. That's very helpful. Yeah, I think that's the the key part, Um, because I think if you Google online teaching, there's a lot of really good resources out there. But but developing some of those um, uh, activities, if you haven't done a lot of them before, can be um, very time consuming. 
and we don't have a lot of time to do this. So those who know uh, and have had a lot of experience with online learning might be able to do things more quickly. Uh, others of us, it may take uh, a little bit more time. And so um, uh, so I would also, I think my advice would be, don't be overwhelmed by what others are saying they're doing until you know what their level of experience uh, and expertise is with it. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that have done online learning, so they're not going to be as intimidated. And there's lots of people that have not. And, and so we have to start with where we are at. So don't be intimidated when you talk to other people, hear what they have to say, maybe even find a partner to help you. Uh, but don't let their expertise, if they've been doing online learning for 10 or 12 years and this is your first attempt, don't measure yourself by their metrics. I, I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, the one caveat I put to that, and I agree, I think if you can partner up, if you can share ideas, I think that's what we need to do. We need to all be willing to help each other. At the same time, I've been hearing rumblings, and, and quite rightly so, um, uh, from junior colleagues, of senior colleagues asking them to do it for them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as a senior person, I, I know that uh, um, junior colleagues often have more experience with the Internet, with social media, with online learning. Um, but it's unfair to ask them to do the work. Um, they may know it better and they may be able to share their ideas and some advice, but they shouldn't be uh, put on in, in any institution to be doing the work for others. I think we all have to step up and step into this. So we're asking seniors not to be, uh, take this moment to be exploitative of junior colleagues <clears throat> or, or colleagues uh, who have yeah, more absolutely. experience. And, and, and as we know, um, you know, junior colleagues are, um, uh, are vulnerable to exploitation uh, in so many different ways. And, and I think now is the time for us to protect them. Uh, and for administrators, I hope to also step up and say they have their own struggles, their own stress. And even if they understand this and are a little bit more comfortable uh, with the technology than others, um, they're going to have their own stresses about their own courses. So let them do their thing. Uh, so that's only a caveat on I still think we should be talking with one another and working together as best we can. Um, I just, uh, it's just like we're going to, because so many people are going to have to go online, we're all going to have to step up and, and figure it out. Well, and figuring it and out. And that means there'll be a whole range. Right. Figuring it out is just that, that you, it's not something that you can, if you've never done it or done it only uh, sparingly, don't hold yourself to a standard again of, of making it look like it's effortless when you're still attempting it. So be open right. with your students when they are in the class session. This is the first time I'm doing this. You don't have to pretend like you're the expert if you're not the expert. So communicating with students um, to be patient, to be understanding about how to get this first sec section going, session going, or the second session. What would you say to your students, Richard, if you didn't know what was happening? Yeah, this, this is really important. I think um, Patricia Killen, in workshops that I've been in with her, talked a lot about parallel processing. And I actually wrote a little a piece on that because I found it so helpful. It's published in the, in the Wabash Journal. And the parallel processing is, is being transparent, being open with your students about what you're attempting. And I do this in the classroom even. I say, you know, this is a new activity for me. I've never done this. And, you know, afterwards, we debrief and say, yeah, did that work? Did that not work? And students seem to appreciate that. And I think more so than ever, I think rather than pretend that, that we're, we know exactly what we're doing, we say to students, you know, I think this is the best way to help you in your learning in this course. 
but you know, let me know if it's not working. I need to know, and we'll figure this out together. Um, office students have some great ideas of how to tweak things or what, what else we might do uh, in, in our courses. And so in the online environment, they might say, you know, this discussion group isn't working for me. Couldn't we all do um, just a, a, a posting, a blog, a blog posting instead, for example, something else that they're more, uh, more comfortable with. So I think transparency, absolutely, and not trying to pretend that we have all this down when, when we obviously won't. What about the lecture? So many of us uh, that mm-hmm. still in face-to-face classrooms rely upon uh, lecturing for long periods of time, 20 minutes, an hour, sometimes long, longer. <laughs> yeah. What does the yeah. lecturer do with an online format? Yeah, that's a, a really good, I love lecturing. I mean, for all the interactivities that I do, I just, uh, I, I just relish in lecturing. And, um, but a lot of it is, is the interactions with students as well. And I think if we haven't already, um, well, a couple of things, but if we, if we haven't already got our lectures recorded, we're going to be doing them, you know, in front of a computer, but with no audience interaction. And I think that can get very dry very quickly. I think student attention spans in the classrooms are already short enough, and I think online will be even shorter. Um, there's, there's a way in which um, all of us are, are getting enculturated not to have long attention spans. So I, I think one of the ways to address that is to um, bring lectures down to what are key essential things for the student learning and to do it in snippets and interact that with, with the possibilities for students to provide feedback or to, to interact with one another. Now, a lot of this will depend on class size. Um, you know, obviously a class of 20 might be a, a little bit different in terms of interactivity than a class of 100. But I think, you know, posting a lecture or, um, uh, so they can watch you for five, 10 minutes, maybe explain something really complex, something that might be better explained um, verbally than, than having them read an article or even reading the lecture notes would be good. But after five, 10 minutes, then having them have the opportunity to get feedback, even if it's just, you know, um, sending a note to somebody else in the classroom saying what they think they heard and checking in with two or three others to see if, you, if they all heard the same thing. The kind of thing we might do when we stop, for example, in class, are there any questions? Mm-hmm. Because we lose that ability online. So it sounds like for the person who is, um, I'm going to use the word terrified of making this leap, that it, you're, you're not asking me necessarily to do anything creative. You're just asking me to use the medium that's in front of me. So many people think I can't teach online because, first, because of the mechanical pieces, right? And your ID departments can help you with that. Your teaching assistants can help you with that. Beyond that, people will say, I'm not creative. I don't know how to change things. But the suggestions that you don't that you just gave don't necessarily sound creative as much as they sound like basic pedagogical questions of how do I get feedback from my learners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, early on, I, I, a long time ago, I wrote an article and I, the title was Pedagogy Before Technology. And I still stand by that. Um, we're all professional teachers. That's what we do. That's what we know how to do. And that's what is our job. Um, the technology is is the is the medium through which we can broker that. Whether you know early on with online teaching, we talk about technology, the blackboard's technology, which it is. So how do we use the blackboard in the classroom? I mean, 
we often don't stop to think about it, but we use it at certain times in certain ways to help translate or transmit concepts or to check in with students or to have them write on a whiteboard or a blackboard to show us what they've learned. It's, it's a low-tech technology. It's a non-digital technology. But that's what we have in front of us with, with our um, student learning pla- or our, our um, digital learning platform. We have technology. It's, it's more ramped up. It's got more bells and whistles. But it's really just the tool for the things that we're expert at, which is how do we um, get our students to learn and to experience the learning process. So I think if we start with that, what do I want them to engage with? And then how can I make this tool do it? It can start very low-key. It does not have to be all kinds of fancy uh, videos and um, interactive cut and paste and, and, and even you know, all the things that technology can do if you're comfortable with it. Um, you know, pop quizzes that you know, jump up and students you know, pop in their answers and automatically get graded. All of that takes, takes time to think through, design, uh, code, and implement. And it's great if you have people like TA and an IT department to help you. But when you don't, that's not going to happen in, in right now. We're, we're in crisis mode. So going back to just you know, how can I use this tool I think maybe can alleviate a little bit of that panic. So staying focused on my learning outcomes, asking how can I uh, not panic, but stay with my own course content. Um, I don't have to use the tech as a high digital platform. Use it like a blackboard. Use it like a whiteboard. Do basic things that will still facilitate my class. What questions should um, teachers ask in this moment about who their students are? Like, will the students... What considerations should we give to who our own students are in the classroom? Not the students in general in the school, but the actual ones sitting in our own classrooms. Yeah, I think that's that's also a really important point and and to not lose sight of that. Um, Because students in the classroom, although overall, we might say, well, students are a lot more familiar with technology than I am. Um, Each individual student will have their own comfort level and abilities and experiences with different technology. And some of them, um, I'm thinking, for example, students that are particularly shy that might not talk a lot in the classroom. If all of a sudden you create a discussion group and demand that they post their thoughts, in, and you know the pedagogical principle of interactivity is behind that, that's great. But a shy student is going to be terrified by that, just as we're terrified about moving online. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of students will be comfortable with it, but there will be students in our, our class that, that aren't um, for reasons not, not unlike why we aren't. And so I think also recognizing that, recognizing the diverse learning styles, that, again, we know when we're teaching face-to-face, uh, might help us think through, you know, what we can do to help the students, to facilitate the students' learning at that level. Are there alternatives that can be offered or um, if not everything should be post something publicly, maybe there can be some private things, again, depending on class size and, and maybe if TAs or not, you know, reading, reading a lot of postings um, might be, uh, might, might be difficult. And help us, um, under- go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, help us understand how flexible we should be. What criteria should we use if we have if we have a student on both ends of the spectrum, one that you just described, there actually might be students who prefer online learning and excel and somehow come up 
in the class and in the class discussion, as well as in the learning activities in general. There will be other students who will dip down in their interactions. How do we, how do we assess whether we're successful when we're doing this? I think there's a couple of ways we can do it. And I think for the first week or so, it's good, you know, again, because we have a short time frame, to, to do what we think will work best in terms of the learning outcomes and, and getting the students moved along in terms of, of the, the arc of the course. But then, as you mentioned earlier, checking in with the students some way, and that might be a public forum, what do you think of this? Or it might be send me a private email or send a private email to my PA and they won't tell me who you are. But did this work for you? And if the majority of the students it did, then then you know you you've got something that can be repeated. If if it's split or if the majority didn't, then you have to rethink it. So that transparency about hey, I'm taking this out too, I think, and, and an invitation for students to provide feedback. So I think that's one thing. But it, I'm almost certainly there's going to be different ways of learning in the represented in the classroom, no matter what the size. So um, whatever we might gravitate gravitate to first. For example, I have great lecture notes. I'm just going to post them online and have students write it with block paper. That that might work at first, but it won't necessarily work for everyone. So start thinking, what from what I know from my experience with other kinds of learners, how can I facilitate their learning, make them more comfortable for a week? And, and I don't think we can ever do one activity that will get to everyone. Mm-hmm. I, I remember when I was first teaching in an interactive class, it wasn't face-to-face, but a student came, and I had a lot, 30% of my grade was participation. I had a lot of participation. And a student came to me and said, you know, that that really privileges the extroverts and, and really disadvantages the introverts. And, and I have to say, it made me pause, and I thought about it for a bit, and I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. But normally in a class where you get a lecture for three hours a week, and then you go to the library and write research papers, that really privileges the introverts right. and not the extroverts. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's always privileging, and so we have to find that balance for the whole. And so the online, again, with the tool of online learning, how do I use it to find that balance for the different ways students would prefer to learn and also push them a little bit out of their comfort zone? And if, it, if there is a TA involved, help us know what to ask the TA to do. Because similar to getting feedback from our students, from our other colleagues, if there is a TA in the mix, that person can be very helpful. Help us to know what to ask the TA to do or to look out for. Right. Well, I think when you talk about partnering and and uh, working with others, I mean, the TAs are the first go-to people. I mean, that's, that's part of what they're getting paid for is to help you with the course. And in fact, they might have had a little bit more experience than the instructor with online learning. They might have already taken online courses in, in their own educational background, especially if they're graduates now they might have done some of the undergrad level. So just bouncing ideas off them, I think, could be the, one of the first ways to, to use their time. Uh, again, I just want to put the caution around exploiting TAs because they shouldn't be working any more than they would have. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a matter of redistribution, redistribution of their time. But in larger classes, they can also be facilitators if you have one or more of them, if you break your class into groups. So if, you know, uh, when I was teaching online, um, I was lucky enough to, to be between 20 and 30 students, and I didn't have a TA. Had I had one or two TAs, I would have used, I could easily put them um, as moderators of a group. Um, so I can imagine doing that 
what I did, in fact, is made that a student role. So I, I had discussion groups and I said, you know, everybody has to contribute except, you know, Sally or Jane. And, and I would name them as the moderator for that week. In fact, I named a moderator and a summarizer. Everyone else discussed and somebody made sure it happened and the other person made, made a summary at the end, which then I could skim the, the discussion and read the summary. But a TA can do that kind of thing. They can monitor discussions. They can help find resources. They can post resources. But first and foremost, they can be that, that conversation partner about what we think may or may not work. And given their skill and, and availability, they might also be able to, to do things in the online environment that we can. And as, and uh, set up and as a, a person who is no tech as I am, I if I were in this situation, I would actually ask my nieces and nephews to help me right. for the for the, the, the promise of the pizza dinner, the promise of the movie to come in and make sure they're sitting there with me. So my tech works. I would not think of that yeah. as cheating as a faculty person to try to facilitate my own classroom. No, I, I think um, it, it's, again, it, it, in that case, not explicit, they're not your students and um, you're, you're paying them in pizza. And, uh, and I think really good. I think it, we, again, I go back to the fundamental principle is I want to put my students first. What is the best way to help their learning? And, uh, you know, I have actually, I hadn't even thought of this until you just said that, but um, I, both my children are in university. One's in third year in their undergrad, and the other is PhD students, both actually here at my university. So I know my daughter is TA, of course, and this is going to um, affect her if we go online. And she's going to have to think through how is she going to TA a course online in terms of holding a separate tutorial once a week for an hour. Mm-hmm. That's part of her job. So she and I can talk back and forth. So, um, you know, maybe there's a graduate student that you work with that will benefit. So somebody you're supervising, but is also teaching a course themselves or, or TAing a different course that you might be able to talk back and forth and be mutually beneficial or helpful. Um, or, you know, my, 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 my third year son will have no qualms, but probably me why I don't think it's a bad idea if I bounce it off. Yeah, like, don't do that, Dad. Don't do that. So um, all of these are, are resources that we can use in the interest of our students. And just what about the assignments? If I'm, I'm sticking with my learning outcomes, I'm focusing on my content, I'm asking myself who my learners are, I'm getting help both from the university, I'm making sure I don't exploit my junior faculty, I might even be looking to friends and, and family for support yeah. if, I, if I'm um, working on that low of an ebb. What, when would I decide, based on all the things that I've had to shift so quickly, if my like final assignment has to be shifted? That's a really, I think that's a really good question. One of the questions that has to be asked up front when, when we ask the question about how can I facilitate my student learning the best. If, so the, the assignments, I, I'm assuming here, we design our assignments so that students can um, reflect back to us the learning that they've experienced and that we give them the skills to do that through, through the face-to-face classroom environment and all the other things that go with that. If that can be done in mediated through, through uh, the digital platform, then, that, then that's how that can guide what we do to get them to that assignment. If we decide up front that I actually can't give them the skills in the online environment, just not possible, to get that assignment done, then I think it's fair. That's the time to rethink that assignment and say, you know, you're not going to be able to. And, and the answer is to say, I had assigned this, 
you know, for three weeks from now, and then this final project. And neither of those are going to be possible because we can't do the classroom work the same way. So I'm going to redesign that assignment so that we can do it. So still makes the broad learning outcomes, which, you know, hopefully we'll use words like analysis to compare or whatever it is to show, demonstrate. But if it can't be done with that assignment, then it's time to change the assignment. So I think that's that's one thing is to not hold on to it because it's, it's there. I think, that, you know, normally I would say a syllabus is, you know, depending on your institution, functions somewhat like a contract. But, I mean, everything is up in the air right now. And I think that learning is more important. Um, I, I know some institutions are offering the opportunity to also go to a pass-fail model. I don't know how widespread that is. I just heard from actually uh, the last Wabash cohort I was working with had quite an active chat the last few days about about this very thing with, with various degrees of, of both excitement and panic about it. And and at least one institution has said if the professor deems it so, then they can go to a pass fail. So then maybe that assignment can still be there, but as a pass fail, or maybe it could be removed in favor of a redistribution of that percentage of the course into other kinds of activities in the online environment, discussion groups or posting, blog posts, or again, depending on your familiarity and, and your comfort, you might have them them even post videos or do synchronous live um, Zoom chat, um, or as you say, even conference calls, right? But, you know, Skype, Zoom, other things that work inside and outside our learning platform uh, can be used, and we can get students credit for that. So it might be that if you had 10% participation, and 40% for a final research paper, you make the final research paper a little shorter, different, worth only 20%, and you ramp up the participation mark on the basis of the kinds of work they're going to be doing for the next month, month and a half in the online environment. So on one hand, it feels like we have too much time to figure it out. On the other hand, the number of sessions that are left till the end of the semester are not many sessions for most people. No, they're not. I think more so in the United States than in Canada. I mean, um, we only have three weeks left. Um, and and I think uh, in the U.S. there's, there's four to six, uh, maybe a little bit more than that left. Um, so not not very long to do it. So again, it might be that a lot of the assignments have already passed. Um, and so not that much change has to be has to be done. It's just a matter of getting students there. So uh, again, thinking about how do I get my students to have engage with the material to be able to learn it in order to demonstrate back to me. Start with that and say, you know, very short time, not a lot of time to get, you know, the, the bells and whistles going because these, these um, learning platforms are very powerful when, when you can fully exploit them. But if, if we're not already familiar with them, it's hard to see. The, the good thing is there's lots of good resources online with so many open, open access uh, journal articles and, and even books through our library, um, all kinds of great videos and TED Talks and things. That uh, a lecture need not be me talking. I might be able to push it off to you know watch ten minutes of this TED Talk and fifteen minutes of this professor at a different university talk, and then somebody that contradicts them on a different video, and then have the students try and pull it all together with a bit of guidance. That sort of thing. Is it part of online uh, learning to ask students to watch videos, TED Talks, those kind of things during class? Um, again, that's, that's a good question because if you're, so I guess 
to back up a bit and say, you know, two ways of online learning is one is to say, um, you, I already know you're not busy for, for these blocks during the week. So we're actually going to meet online together. Everybody logs into the course website and we will have discussions. We will watch videos. I will talk a little bit. And, and that's the sort of synchronous, the, the synchronous model where, um, it just says we're not meeting face to face, but we're meeting mediated digitally. And that, that can work. Um, and students can interact then and, and even ask questions. The asynchronous option would be to say, you know, I expect you to work nine to 12 hours a week on each course. But that's what it is at my university. The, the learning hours weekly is nine to 12. And we have to set up, up front what, what that might look like between lecture and, and you know, so they're only in class for three hours, but the rest of their time would be reading and preparing, you know, various weeks and weeks, but on average. And so I might say, you know, I'm not going to require you to log in during our class time, but I expect you to do the nine hours a week. And here's how you're going to do it. You're going to watch me talk a little bit. You're going to participate in this group discussion and you're going to watch this TED talk as, you know, part of your reading. Um, so I think, again, that's just a decision that needs to be made up front and maybe even week to week. It could be we're going to meet together at class time online during week one and three, but in week two and four, I'm going to let you do your own thing and post it back to me whenever it's convenient for you. So just knowing we have uh, or, those kind of choices, mixture. there are many choices that we have that we don't have to duplicate. We're not trying to duplicate the classroom interaction. There are many choices that we can, we can offer to students about what happens during the amount of time we've allocated for learning. Yeah. In, I, I think that's, that's what's exciting, even though terrifying in this time. Is that I think, you know, I've long been a, a proponent of, of the benefits of long online learning. And I think this will give opportunity for people to see, or at least even to imagine what could be possible, even when we know we can't implement it for such a short period. And so, um, you know, the upside is we may have more um, blended kinds of learning after this when, when people experience, people that haven't done online learning, experience some of the things that might be possible um, with their students that, that is different from and yet not not better or worse than in the face-to-face. I'm not making that argument, but just different from but still effective and, and exciting and often quite fun. Um, may not feel like that facing the terror of, you know, I've never done this sort of thing. So I, I appreciate that, that people will feel like that. But um, so the upside is maybe, you know, in next fall, people will say, you know, I'm going to do one, one or two weeks where we just do some online stuff in my course. That that would be really interesting. Um, but it's, it's admittedly, it's learning the hard way because this is being, is being thrust upon it. I, I know that, um, you know, to be honest, I, I, I was an early adopter, but, but teaching online and actually early on, I was a student online, um, learning about how to teach online. And that radically transformed my classroom teaching. And this is, this is why I do so much interactive learning in my class, my face-to-face classes right now is because of what I experienced online. I realized the interactivity that was there could actually go back to the classroom. So, so this is why I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to say, oh, take what you do in the classroom and put it online. I'm actually play a little bit, be prepared to fail. Uh, this is a, a good time to fail because there'll be a lot of forgiveness from students and from administration. We're all doing our best. So experiment a little bit. Be prepared to fail. It's, it's tough on the ego, but um, and learn what what doesn't doesn't work for you and for your students, and then take those lessons back into the classroom. 
what kind of things did you do that might work? Um, and as I say, now I have three hour classes that are, I might lecture at most for 15, 20 minutes total, but it's a five minute block that everything else is interactive. Richard Askoff, we thank you so much. We need your advice. We're going to take your advice. So tell us one more time not to panic. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't panic. And um, if I could, there's this one thing I've seen floating around the internet, and that's like, uh, and, and I think a, a, real, a realistic fear when it comes to Un, uh, unethical administrators. Hopefully there's not too many of those, but that people will somehow create these courses online and the administration will use that to kind of get rid of faculty members. And so we should do a bad job because then we won't be asked to do this again. That, that's not fair to our students. I think do your best, but also protect yourself if you are in a situation where you think your own books might get exploited. Absolutely protect yourself. But I think, you know, bottom line is put the students first, the pedagogy first, and Don't panic. Do your best. There'll be a lot of forgiveness along the way. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for having me. And we're out. How was that, Paul?